continue praying together. Oh Jesus, we do turn our eyes to you because you are our prize. You are our treasure. You are the most valuable being in all of this universe. And so we turn our eyes to you. And we turn our eyes to you because we have nowhere else to turn. You and you alone are beautiful and glorious and breathtaking. And so, Lord, would you captivate our hearts? Would you captivate our affections? Would you set our minds on things above? Would you set our minds on Christ? We thank you this morning that we can gather and sing these great songs together. We thank you that we can look into your word now and that we can listen to your voice. We thank you for your inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative word. We thank you for speaking to us so clearly. And we pray that you would help us to see you, see your glory, see your beauty in your word this morning in such a way that we would be changed, in such a way that we would live differently and think differently and feel differently, that we would live and think and feel according to your word, according to your truth. And so, Lord, we pray you'd sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. And come this morning particularly and show us how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Show us this life-giving reality of the unity that Christ has won for us and that we're to pursue together. And Lord, confront all that causes disunity in us and help us to see the ways that we can cultivate and pursue a deeper and more true unity in our body. We need You, Lord. We ask You for Your help because we want to hear You, see You, and behold You. Would You help us to do that from Your Word now as we turn our eyes upon Jesus. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Go ahead and grab your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel according to John. The Gospel according to John, chapter 17. John chapter 17 is one of the most unique and overwhelming chapters in all of Scripture. Just before, just moments before he is betrayed, just moments before he is arrested, just moments before he would eventually be crucified, Jesus, the Son of God, lifts his eyes to heaven and audibly speaks directly to his Father. Here is what Jesus did just with the last free moments of His earthly life. The last moments before He was bound with chains and put on trial. Here's what He did. In John 17, we have, I think without a doubt, the greatest prayer ever recorded. Greatest prayer ever recorded. The significance of this prayer in John 17, this high priestly prayer, is difficult to overstate. Because in this passage, we have the eternal Son of God speaking to the eternal Father about the accomplishment of their eternal plan. In John 17, 
We are allowed to observe the deepest concerns of our Savior's heart, even as He was in the process of giving His life for us and our sins. Just moments before He would willingly give Himself up as a lamb for the slaughter, He reveals His very soul to His Father as He intercedes for us as our great High Priest. And so follow along as I read a couple of passages here from John 17. I'm going to read the first five verses so that we can get sort of a flavor of what was in the Savior's heart as He prayed just after this upper room discourse. And then we're going to jump over to verses 20 through 23 and focus there this morning. So John 17, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words... He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. And then from verse 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples who were right there with him. And then look at verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Consider just for a moment, if Jesus were physically present with us this morning, what would he pray for us? If Jesus were invited up here to the stage to pray for us, what would he pray for? What would the Son of God ask the Father to do for Miller Heights Baptist Church? What do you think he would pray for? Would he pray for our outreach efforts to be uh, successful? Would he pray for our evangelistic methods to be fruitful? Would he ask the Father to increase our giving or our attendance? Would he ask the Father to help us stand firm for truth in the midst of a godless culture? Would he pray for our music to be more traditional or more trendy? Would he pray for more cultural or racial or generational diversity in our church? Perhaps Jesus would pray for some of these things. 
However, we're not left to guess as to what he would pray for, what he for sure would pray for us, because he would pray what he has already prayed. His priorities have not changed over the past 2,000 years. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so John 17, 20 and following contains Jesus' prayer for all of those who would believe in Him after His death and resurrection. In other words, this passage contains Jesus' prayer for us. This passage contains Jesus' prayer for His church, for our church. Notice verse 20. After praying for those disciples that were immediately around Him, He specifically says, I do not ask for these only. I'm not just praying for these 11 disciples that are right here around me. But who am I praying for? I also am praying for those who will believe in me through their word. Now think about what's in the Savior's mind as He goes to the cross here. He's confident that the gospel will triumph. He's confident that these disciples will proclaim the message of the gospel. And that people will believe in Him because of their message. Just hours before the cross, the Savior is able to see the expansion of the gospel, the triumph of the truth of the good news. He's able to see and pray for a multitude of people throughout the ages and ages and ages who would believe in Him, who would put their faith in Him. He's praying for all believers from His death and resurrection all the way to His second coming. And you see what He sees as He looks out upon history? He was looking forward, but we, we can look back now. We can look back. In this moment, He was praying for everyone who would turn from their sins and who would put their faith in Him. Everyone in the church age who would trust in Him. He was praying for His church. And so if Jesus was physically here this morning, what would He pray for us? He would ask the Father to do what He has already asked the Father to do. You can tell a lot about a person by what they pray for. And in this passage, we have the heart of the Lord Jesus revealed to us. Here is His priority for us. Here's what He prayed for just hours before He willingly laid down His life for us. What a privilege to have access to this passage. What a privilege that it doesn't just say, and then, then Jesus prayed, and then he was betrayed and arrested. What a privilege to have this chapter and Jesus' heart laid bare for us to see what it is he wants. What does Jesus want? What did Jesus pray for us? I want to draw your attention to just one of the specific prayers that Jesus makes for His church. Just one of the ways that He intercedes for us as our great high priest. Notice, here it is. Here's the whole point. Jesus prays for a compelling unity. Jesus prays for a compelling unity. He prays that His followers will be so united that the entire world will be compelled to believe in Him. Look at verse 21. Look at verse 21. He prays that they, who's the they again? That's us. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, 
that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus is praying for a oneness, a unity that is based on the oneness of the relationship between the Father and the Son. How united are the Father and the Son? He says, just as the Father and the Son are one, just as you, Father, and me, and I and you, let my followers be that united. Let my followers be that unified in me, Jesus prays. Look at verse 22. He prays that the glory that you have given me, I have given them. Why? That they may be one even as we are one. So Jesus says he revealed his glory. Why? So that we would be unified. Jesus took on flesh, became a man, revealed his glory, not merely for our personal advancement, not merely for our personal advancement. He reveals his glory. Why? So that the church will be unified. He shows himself to be beautiful and breathtaking so that there would be unity among his followers. Look at verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So notice Jesus prays for perfect unity. He doesn't just pray for general, he prays for perfectly unified in order that the unbelieving world might know two things. Notice what Jesus wants the unbelieving world to see. He wants them to see through our unity that He was sent by the Father. Show them through the unity of my followers that You sent me, Father, that I'm the promised Messiah, that I'm the one that all the Scriptures point to. And then secondly, that the Father has loved believers even as He loved His Son. Let them be unified so that the world knows you sent me, Father, and let, us, let them be unified so that the world will know how much you have loved your followers. Is that not a staggering claim at the end of verse 23? Look at it again. He prays, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them. Who's the them? And love them is loved us Loved His people. Loved those who believed in His name. Even as you love me. Our harmony in a local church is designed to declare the Father's amazing love for His people. And so Jesus is praying for this compelling unity in the church that would be attractive to the unbelieving world. A unity that would display His beauty. The glory of His Father's breathtaking love for sinners. So think about what we learn about Jesus from this prayer for unity. What do we learn about Jesus from this prayer for compelling unity? Well, just right on the surface, notice first that Jesus values unity among His followers. This might be the biggest understatement I could make in this moment. Jesus values unity among his followers. How, how much does he value unity? He values it. That's one of the only things he prays for here, but also in that he's laying down his life to purchase this unity he's praying for. It's clear from this prayer 
that one of Jesus' priorities for His people is unity. Jesus doesn't want His followers to live in isolation. He doesn't want His followers to live in disunity, but to live in harmony with one another. Our oneness is a picture. A picture of the oneness between the persons of the very Godhead, of the Trinity itself. The glory of God is revealed when we live in unity with each other. And the New Testament is clear regarding the emphasis and importance on unity among God's people. It's not just here. It's all through the New Testament. Just a few weeks ago, we saw Paul's prayer in Romans chapter 15. Remember what Paul prayed for? The church at Rome? He prayed that God would grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul commanded the church to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. In Philippians 2, Paul urges the church to complete his joy by being of the same mind and having the same love. Because of the emphasis on unity in the New Testament, the very first promise of our church covenant is this. We will work and pray for unity and peace in this church. The desire for and the efforts in pursuing unity are at the heart of what it looks like to follow Jesus. What does it mean to follow Jesus? This is what it looks like. It means working hard at and pursuing unity with each other. And so in its most broad sense, Jesus is praying here that all of His followers would be unified. That all believers from all time would have the same primary passion, would have the same goals, would have the the, the same mission. The scope of this prayer is very broad. And this prayer was in fact answered in Jesus' death that breaks down the dividing wall of hostility, Ephesians 2. So in a very real sense, this prayer has been answered. We have unity. It's a reality. It's a present reality that Jesus has purchased. And one day, this prayer will be finally and fully answered when Jesus returns and makes all things right. All believers will one day be of one heart and one mind. We will all sing the same song, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And so there's a breath to this prayer. But there's also an incredible depth to this prayer. And I think one of the applications of Jesus' priority of unity must be thought of in terms of the local church. How do we specifically apply the desire for unity? How do we specifically pursue unity? Well, you do so in the context of a local church. You see, local churches like this one are meant to be an expression of the universal church. The invisible church made up of all believers of all time. You can't attend that church. It's impossible to get to know all of those people. But the local church is that outpost of the kingdom of God. That embassy, if you will, of the kingdom of God where you can actually see the real people of God, where you can actually be together with believers. And so someone could look at this prayer and say, man, we got to go at uniting all Christians everywhere. We need to all be of the same denomination and all be of the same thought. That's what what Jesus wants. 
Maybe it is. But friends, don't talk about loving and being unified with all Christians everywhere in the world if you aren't willing to actually commit yourself to a particular group of Christians and be unified with them through thick or thin for the next 50 years. If you aren't willing to actually be unified with real people, you can't talk about unity everywhere in the world. You have to be actually committed to the people of God and pursue unity with real people, with real needs, with real sins. Friends, if you think honestly about unity in the local church, you realize that this is impossible in our own strength. No wonder Jesus asked the Father to make us one because He knew if we actually are unified, it would be God's doing and not our own. And so unity in the local church goes deeper than our unity around any other calls in all of the world. Our unity in the body of Christ goes deeper than any passion or desire that any of us could ever have. We, we are all so very different. Think about how different we are. We don't all like the same football teams. We don't all like to eat at the same restaurants. We don't all support the same political parties. We're not all born in the same country. But all of us in the local church believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all have the same Lord. And so just look around at the church this morning. Just look around at the people who are here. If you're a member here at Miller Heights, these are the people you've committed, you've promised to live in harmony with. These people like me, with all of my sins, with all of my weaknesses, with all of our disagreements, with all of our annoyances, with all of our differences, these are the people whom Jesus prayed that you would be one with. And so unity must be a priority. If it's a priority for Jesus, it must be a priority for us at Miller Heights Baptist Church. Jesus values it, and so let's work hard to attain it, to maintain it, and let's pray that God would indeed accomplish it in us. So Jesus values unity. That's right on the surface. But here's a second truth about Jesus that I want you to see that Jesus is praying for. True unity points the world to Jesus. Or you could say Jesus is seen through our unity. Jesus says that the reason He's praying for unity is so that the world will believe in Him. Notice twice in these few verses. Verse 21, verse 23. Jesus says the reason He's praying for unity is not just for unity's sake, but so that the world will see and know who He is. True unity is a compelling witness to a lost world. So here's Jesus' church growth strategy. Here's Jesus' evangelistic methodology. His church in unity. When His followers live in harmony, Jesus is shown to be an object of great worth. This is how the church grows. Unified relationships result in expanding witness to the world. Unified relationships in the body of Christ results in an expanding witness to the lost and dying world. But the opposite of this is true as well, is it not? If true unity results in good witness, then what does disunity result in? Bad witness. Friends, we all know this to be true. Nothing is as damaging to our witness as our disunity. Friends, the real enemy to effective evangelism is not outdated methods or lack of slick presentations. 
The real enemy to outreach is our relationships with each other. It's the way we treat each other. The real barriers to effective outreach are things like gossip and insensitivity, negative criticism, jealousy, backbiting, unforgiveness, bitterness, self-preoccupation, greed, selfishness, and every other form of lovelessness. And so Jesus is praying that the Father will deliver us from these evils in our relationships. Friends, the most helpful thing you could do as a member of this church, and really I think the clearest expression of your love for Jesus is not just to serve on a committee or some official position in the church, as important as that is. It's not just to serve in our children's ministry or in the nursery. As important as that is, I encourage you to do things like that. The most helpful things you could do for this church is to pursue genuine unity with each other. The best way you could serve and strengthen this local body is in the relationships you have with each other. And so ask yourself a question. In what ways have you not pursued unity in this church? Who have you ungraciously criticized? Who have you been jealous of? Who have you failed to appreciate? Who have you neglected to love? Jesus says true unity in the church is the clearest picture of the relationship between the Father and the Son. We don't have any photographs of Jesus. right? We don't know what Jesus looked like. But Jesus says the best picture of Him is when the church is unified. A unified church is a picture sharing the truth about Jesus. This is who our Lord is. And so there's a picture frame around our church. There's a picture frame around our relationships that says to the world, this is what Jesus is like. This is what, this is what our Savior is like. And so the unity that Jesus is praying for here, it's not a, a shallow unity. It's not just being friendly to one another. He's praying for a deep oneness of purpose and passion that makes us willing to serve each other and lay down our lives for one another in spite of our disagreements, in spite of our differences. And so on the night before He went to the cross, Jesus prayed that we would be one so that the world would be compelled to believe in Him. And you know, you must know, that Jesus did not just pray for our unity. He laid down His life. He died on the cross to secure our unity with each other. He died to reconcile us to God and He died to reconcile us to each other. He died to unify the church. Now, it's not difficult to talk about unity in a church in theory. It's not, it's not difficult at all to embrace. We all agree. But how do we actually pursue unity in a local church practically? What, what does it look like? How should Jesus' prayer for unity here in John 17 actually change our lives? Well, let me give a couple thoughts of application Really just random. We could go on and on with this for a long time. But let me give you six thoughts of application pursuing unity together in the local church. Number one, we can't be unified if we don't regularly gather. We can't be unified if we don't regularly meet together. If we don't regularly gather. So here's, here's the connection with the series that we're doing. Why, why, why do we gather? 
Well, here, here's why we gather. Because Jesus values unity. Because Jesus values us being together. The call to unity is a call to gather. Being together means being together. Like you can't say you're pursuing unity if you remain isolated by yourself. If you neglect the gathering of the saints, that's the very definition of not wanting to be unified with the body of Christ. This is where our harmony is cultivated. And this is where our harmony is most clearly expressed. You see, when we all sing the same songs at the same time, we're expressing our unity. Like, listen, we could give you a playlist and we could all get in our cars and sing the songs as we go home. But, but that's, not, that's not us together saying these things, saying this is what unifies us. This is what we believe about our God. This is what delights our hearts together. When we pray together, we're voicing a desire for unity. When we listen to God's Word being proclaimed together, we're allowing God to build unity on His truth and not on our opinions. When we partake of the Lord's Supper together, we are remembering Jesus' death that has made us all one. And so we can't say we're unified just because we gather. Like, Don't hear me saying that. Like, just because you gather, that means you're unified. No, it's not just an automatic thing. But also, we can't claim to be unified if we don't gather. It is a necessary part of what it means to be unified. Here's the second application thought. True unity requires hard work. True unity requires hard work. Now, because God is glorified by our unity, we must labor to maintain it. Unity is worth pursuing because God is worthy of glory, honor, and praise. Friends, the, most, the more precious something is, the more precious and fruitful it is, the more we should strive to keep it, to maintain it, to cultivate it. Like, we should expect a fruitful vineyard to be better maintained and cared for than just some abandoned field out in the middle of nowhere. Right? We spend our efforts maintaining what is valuable, what is worthy. And if something is so near to God's heart and accomplishes God's purposes, then we would be wise to attend to it with all diligence. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul commands the church to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, to make every effort. This requires breaking a sweat. Like this is going to cost us something. This isn't just on the bottom shelf, just easy to grab. Unity requires intentional effort. We cannot neglect this and expect it to just happen on its own naturally. We know ourselves to be sinners. We know our desires to be crooked and bent. Just like the field needs to be plowed and sown and watered and harvested. So our peace with one another requires hard work and diligent labor. And so friends, pursuing unity means we actually have to forgive each other when we offend each other. And notice I said, when we offend, we're going to offend each other. Pursuing unity means we're, we're willing to forgive. We're willing to overlook offenses in each other. Pursuing unity means we have to bear one another's burdens. Pursuing unity means we have to cultivate humility and put our pride to death. Think about one area. Think about how sacrificially giving to the church communicates our desire for unity. This is one of the purposes of our giving. When we give money to God, for His purposes, through the local church, we are contributing to our unity at the church. 
right? We're supporting the structures and ministries that fuel our harmony together. Also, sacrificial serving in the church communicates that desire for unity. Unity requires patience and gentleness and kindness. It's hard work, but thankfully it's work that God loves to enable us to do. And so the third application point is pray for unity. Pray for unity. If ultimately unity comes from God, we must ask God to give it to us, to sustain it in us. It won't happen on its own. We must plead with God to grant it by His grace. Just as Jesus prayed for oneness in John 17, we as His people must ask Him to grant us the grace of being one together. Number four, be willing to lay down your own preferences. How do you pursue unity? Be willing to lay down your own preferences and opinions. Friends, when we become a Christian, we die to ourselves and to our desires. When Jesus calls us to follow Him, He demands that we do what? Take up our cross and deny ourselves daily and follow Him. And so friends, a Christian should never be one who lives for his or her own agenda. This is perhaps the most pervasive cause of disunity in any local church. People who are not willing to lay down what they want for the good of the body as a whole. Friends, this church is not about the desires or preferences or opinions of any one of us. This church is about the mission and purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so real practically, we shouldn't demand our own preference in terms of style of music. Friends, style is a preference. We shouldn't demand that the church have the kind of programs that we prefer, but rather we should jump in and serve where the church is already committed. So many people who call themselves Christians attend, attend church just to serve themselves. The church is all about them. As, as long as they are, uh, everything is to their liking, they're happy. But the moment you change something that they like, that their preference supports, they become grumpy. Friends, that's idolatry. That's idolatry. That, that's the same thing as making a statue of wood and bowing down to it. Except when we, when we worship ourselves, we're bowing down to ourselves, worshiping ourselves instead of God alone. Friends, as Christians, we have a calling to consider others better than ourselves. Like we should be more than willing to lay down our preferences, our opinions for the good of the body as a whole. May God make us people who love Jesus more than we love our own preferences about anything. Fifth application point, be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker. When you hear of problems that arise between people in the church, do whatever you can to help Help seek peace in that situation, with, with that relationship. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who work for peace. Blessed are those who pursue and seek peace. I've heard it said that we carry around with us two buckets. We all have two buckets. One bucket is full of gasoline, and one bucket is full of water. And whenever we encounter someone with a problem... We either use the gasoline to make the fire bigger and the problem bigger, or we use the water to help put the fire out and bring peace to the situation. We either create peace or dissension. 
We either enable people to continue in their bitterness and selfishness, or we help them move toward humility and gentleness. So may God give us a church full of peacemakers, people who are called sons of God. Sixth and finally, most importantly, let's all fix our eyes on King Jesus. Let's all fix our eyes on King Jesus. How do we pursue unity together? What does that look like as we gather when we fix our eyes on the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ? The best way to pursue unity is to all fix our eyes on King Jesus, on our head. You see, when we all have the same goal, the same mission, the same purpose, we can overlook minor differences as long as we are all heading in the same direction. Jesus must be our prize. Jesus must be our greatest treasure. He's the only one glorious enough for us to set our eyes on. There's nothing else that will satisfy you and complete you. Jesus is to be our all-consuming passion and focus. And when He is the all-consuming passion, when He is the prize, when He is the treasure, we will find sweet and pleasant unity among God's people. Life-giving unity. Life-giving unity that will fuel us and enable us to be a good picture of what Jesus has done for us. And so, friends, our motto must be, always should be, it's all about Jesus. He is our prize. He is our treasure. Let's trust Him now. Lord Jesus, we trust You. We thank You for John 17 and this picture of Your heart, this picture of what You want for us, from us. Thank You for laying down Your life to secure our ultimate unity. Lord, we pray that in ever-increasing ways we would be unified so that the world will see Your glory, so that the world will see Your beauty. Oh God, may there be a compelling unity at Miller Heights Baptist Church. A unity that declares how great and glorious and worthy You are. Jesus, You are the head of this church. You call the shots. You make the decisions. You give the wisdom. We look to You. We bow before You. And we trust You. We trust You now. We thank You for what You've done for us on our behalf. And we pray in Your great name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and all sing together.